Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Good morning. It is a tremendous privilege to be here this morning and have the opportunity um, to open the scriptures with you. So without any further ado, if you would take your copy of the scriptures or one of the Bibles there provided and turn to the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at the third chapter of Romans. That's going to be our text for today. And the specific passage that we're going to be looking at is regarded by many uh, commentators and theologians to be the greatest text in all of the Bible. So you take every page, every word of the Bible, and if you had to choose one selection of Scripture, this would be the greatest text in all of the Bible. Um, and you may ask the question, what makes this text so great? Why is this the greatest text in all of the Bible? And it's because of what it contains, namely the gospel. The gospel is contained here in these verses. So we're going to be looking at the third chapter of Romans. We're going to be starting at verse 21. And as we look at this, I want us to consider a question. This is the greatest text in all the Bible because of what it contains, the gospel. And you may ask the question, why are we hearing the gospel, right? We're already Christians, you know, I've been going to church my whole life. Can't you preach on something different? Why don't you preach on something else? And if that's your opinion of someone preaching the gospel, I would have a question for you. And it's, do you think you have a great enough understanding of the gospel that you don't need to hear it again? And the answer to that is going to be no. For just a moment, consider this question. Consider this question. If I could fully understand anything... Absolutely anything. What would I pick? What would I pick? You could say maybe, you know, why have the events of my life played out the way they have? Why has, you know, this happened when I was a kid and then this happened later in life and this happened? Why did these things take place in my life? I would love to know the answer to those questions. Maybe that's your answer. Maybe you would say, you know, I want to know the future. You know, I've lived the past, but I'd love to know the future. What is my life going to look like in the future? What will my children's life look like? What about maybe their children I can't even conceive of a thought of yet? What will their future be like? Maybe these are questions we would like to have answered. Uh, maybe from a theological standpoint, you want to know the answer, you know, which view of eschatology is correct? You know, is it those pre-mill guys? What about those post-mill guys? What about one of those ah-mill guys or one of those other views that you've never heard of? You know, which one of these views is correct? Maybe that's your question. The reality is, though, that one day, it's possible, we don't know for sure, but we may have insights in heaven as the answer is, why did every event in your life play out the way it did? Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Uh, one day in the future, we'll look back at our past, and what was our future will be our past, and we'll know what was to come because it's already come, right? And one day... All things will have taken place, and whatever view of eschatology was correct, if any of them were, will be in the past, and you'll have the right answer. But there's one thing 
There's one thing that for all of eternity we will never stop doing. You go to the book of Revelation, you see what is the eternal state of the church after all things have taken place. It's the never-ending praise of God for what? For what he has done in the purchase of our salvation in the gospel. This is the one thing that we can never fully grasp and understand. We can get a hold of it, but we can't fully get our hands around it, right? It's like one of those big oak trees or whatever, red oak or whatever they are out in California, one of those big trees. You know, you come up and put your arms around it and you say, I got a hold of this tree, but there's a good bit of it that you hadn't quite got your arms around. So you spend your whole life studying one thing and that's the gospel. You know, we may go into other areas, but you always come back to the gospel. There is no greater truth for us to understand than the gospel. There is no more vital task than for us to proclaim the gospel. And those are lofty things to say, right? There's no greater truth in the gospel. There's no vital, more vital task than to proclaim the gospel. At the same time, there is no more dangerous of a task in this life than the proclamation of the gospel. So listen to this quote from Dr. James White. He says, To preach a false gospel is to commit eternal murder. Right? If I was to pull out a gun or a knife or whatever your imagination fancies and end your life here, that would be a momentary glimpse on the radar of all time, right? But to preach a false gospel to someone is eternal murder. This is something that will have consequences that last for eternity. It's a much more grave thing. That's why when David says the words, you know, we don't take lightly the use of our pulpit, as you, as you walk the stairs and you come up here and you take this place, for those of you who have preached before, you feel the weight of knowing that every word you say will be given an account of. There is no idle word from the pulpit. There's no idle word anywhere, but it seems to be more magnified in this position. So with all that in mind, we're going to go to our text. If there's, a, if there's something I can do to make this thing quit ringing, if I need to move forward or backwards, just tell me. Um, But we're going to look at our text in Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26. So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I am reading from the New American Standard, so if you're using the English Standard Version, it will vary slightly, but it's pretty close. Um, Starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." If you'll please join me in a moment of prayer now. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, as we've already sang, that you would speak to us. God, not through the intellect of man, but through the power of the Spirit of God. We pray that your word would come alive today and penetrate the hearts of unbelievers to come to faith. And for those of us already in Christ, that you would renew our passion for worshiping you as we think of the accomplished work that you have done for us. And even now as we hear the rain pouring outside, we thank you for your grace that pours down on us like rain. 
if we were to count the raindrops outside, it wouldn't compare to the amount of grace that you poured out on us. Now, as we look at these words of Scripture, the greatest words in all the Bible, I pray that you would be seen as great. God, I must decrease. You must increase. May you be glorified in these words. We pray this in your name. Amen. For the sake of time, I'm not going to um, preach through the first three chapters of this book. Um, I don't know that uh, David wants to be here until midnight, but um, I'll give a quick synopsis of what we've seen in chapter 1 and 2 um, and leading up to the text we're in now. In the preceding three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul, if you go back and read it, has made one thing abundantly clear, and that is man is lost in sin. In chapter 1, he lays out a blistering case against the Gentiles, right? So for the non-Jew, they don't get a pass. They don't get to say, well, I wasn't one of Israel. I didn't have the law. No, he says, you are without excuse, and you're under the condemnation of God. And if the Jew at that point starts feeling good about himself in chapter 2, he then slams them to the ground, and he strips away any confidence that they would have in their own righteousness. And then, as if they were divided in chapter 3, he lumps them together in one group, He lumps them together in one group, and he makes it clear that both are in a bleak condition because of their being under sin. Any attempt to make a case for oneself is quickly snuffed out in chapter 3 and the verses right before our text today. We're going to read them. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but we're going to read them starting in verse 9 of chapter 3. So if you look at verse 9 of chapter 3, we're just going to read through this real quick. Verses 9 through 18. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their grave is an open grave. I'm sorry, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then he finishes with his tribunal against them with the last two verses here, and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. All the world may be accountable to God. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. So when we read this, we're left with this. There is no hope for man in and of himself. There's no hope for man even in the law. All the law does is reveal his wretched state. And it leaves him there. It leaves him there with nothing to boast in. So Paul has spent three chapters now laying waste to every person who hears this. Jew, Gentile, whatever you want to label yourself, you're included in that group. We are without a reason for God not to do away with us as he did in the days of Noah with the flood. If he would be perfectly just to do that, the only thing keeping him from doing that is his own promise not to do that. And for that we say thank you God. And then we get to verse 21, our text for today. And what are the first two words we see? But now. Right? So what we just read in mind, we see the words but now. And we have a transition. We go from 
what would be understood to be the old covenant language to the new covenant language. But now, so we've had the reality laid out before us that man is a sinner under the wrath of God, but now. And we move forward. Apart from the law. So but now, apart from the law. Now in, in the new covenant, we are going to be doing this apart from the law. Not that the law, you know, there's a lot of time you could spend where dealing with the law and how it's relevant to our lives today and how Jesus dealt with the law. But now we see these words apart from the law or, you know, by different means than the law, something takes place. So the law makes known the condition of man, that he is in sin, he is under sin, he is sin himself, he is a sinner. But that's where the law leaves man. But what do we have in this text? Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested. It has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been manifested. When we see this word manifested, this implies that something previously was concealed or veiled, but now it's revealed, right? So previously it was covered up, now it's uncovered. Now it has been, but now. So how is the righteousness of God manifested? When we get to the next verse, we'll see the answer. It's in Jesus Christ. That's how it's been manifested. Previously veiled in the Old Testament, there was allusions to and hints of and speaking of the Messiah, the one to come, the Son of Man, so on and so forth. But it was like looking through a veil. Like we, we've got a, a shadow or an image, but it's not clear. And then we get to the but now, it's been manifested. The righteousness of God has been manifested, namely in Jesus Christ, personally, perfectly. A few weeks ago in Hebrews, uh, we heard Josh speaking of Jesus um, in, in the verses. It says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. This is the manifestation of God's righteousness in Christ. And this is not something newly thought of. We, we see at the end of the verse, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So again, this is not a new concept. Law and prophets is shorthand for what we refer to as the Old Testament in our Bibles. Um, and Paul himself has already referenced this. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, the first four verses, um, we see in Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And look at verse 4. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul started his letter with that truth and now as he goes into the but now section of his letter um, we see that this is the same truth that was testified by the old testament this is jesus christ the righteousness of god manifested now let's go to verse 22 verse 22 even the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all of those who believe for there is no distinction the righteousness of god in christ is imparted in what way it tells us in the verse through faith through faith. So this is the great answer to the question. So here's the question. If under the law man is doomed, what hope is there for him? What hope is there for man who is under the law and he's under sin and he's doomed? The only answer we can have is that we must look to another. We can't look at ourselves because we already see the condition of ourselves. We must look to another. And who can we look to? It gives us the answer in verse 22. Jesus Christ, the manifestation of God's righteousness. God's perfection, his righteousness, his holiness, all of his attributes are seen most clearly in Christ himself. By works of our own effort, all we can do is dig ourselves deeper into peril. If a man tries to make the case for his own righteousness, all he does is reveal even more that he's a sinner. 
right? Because now he's in boastful pride that he himself can drag himself out of this pit. And in the process, you imagine, you know, a, a scene on a movie with quicksand. The harder you try, the, the further and faster you sink. And that's the case for us if we try to make our own case of righteousness. We must rely on the works of another. Listen to this quote. Christ himself is the concrete manifestation of God's uprightness. And human beings appropriate to themselves the effect of that manifested uprightness through faith in him. That's a wordy way of saying what we've already been talking about. But Jesus is the manifestation of God's uprightness, uprightness. And we... The only way we can be made right with God is to have that given to us, to appropriate that to ourselves. And the only way to do that is through faith, through faith. There's no work we can achieve that would bring that about. It must be done through faith. Now, we ask the question, who is this for? Who is this for? In verse 22, we see these words, for all those who believe, for all those who believe. And this is an amazing thing to read, right? Um, On one hand, it's very broad. It's a very broad statement. All those who believe. Um, there's no restriction based on uh, what we would think of normally as categories of man, right? There's no restriction based on ethnicity, place of birth, background, family, lineage, history, economic status, health, looks, personality, or any other qualifier that man looks at, right? None of these are considered. On the other hand, it's an also in, an incredibly narrow opening, It's incredibly narrow. Only those who believe will take place in the righteousness of God. So we have both a broad and a narrow answer here in this. And then at the end of the verse, we see these words. There is no distinction, for there is no distinction. This does two things. One, this ties us back to our previous context where we see that the Jew and the Gentile alike have no access to God except one way, through Jesus Christ. So... We have that referring back to that, and it also leads us forward into the next verse. So there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek. There's no distinction. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, none of us understand God as we ought to. That's... That's simultaneously like a kind of a given, right? Well, how would we understand the infinite God? But at the same time, in our realm of understanding, we also don't understand God as we ought to. Do we desire even to understand God as we ought to is is maybe a better question. And, you you know, you may ask me, how do you know this about me? You know, maybe you're speaking of yourself or someone else, but how do you know this about me? And, And this is how I know. When I read these words... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us in here, you know, fell out on the floor from our seats. When when I read those words, no one in here began to weep at the thought of the fact that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I read these words out of my own Bible, my voice doesn't even tremble. I can recognize the lack I have in my understanding of who God is by the fact that when I read the words... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't cause me to do like we see in Isaiah where he falls and says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Right? That's the reaction when we come face to face with God. And we read the words, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we think about what time is it? Is it time for lunch yet? You know, when's the sermon going to be over? When Isaiah came face to face with God, 
His reaction was to fall as if dead and say, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I have seen the king. And he was made aware of his sin. And you keep reading that passage and see what takes place. We do not fear God. We do not fear God. We take the words of Jesus lightly when he says, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are the words of Jesus. We don't understand two terrible realities. We don't understand the nature of God. We also don't understand the nature of man. And when I say man, I'm speaking, of course, generically of humankind. Man, woman, boy, girl, whatever. We don't understand the true nature of God. We don't understand the true nature of man. So we're going to examine those two. Let's begin with God. I'll ask a question to help us understand this. Which is more like God? Imagine, on one hand, the, the archangel, Michael, right? And on the other hand, you have a dung beetle. If you don't know what a dung beetle is, it's a little beetle that rolls balls of poop around. That's what we call a dung beetle. It's a smart name. So on one hand, you've got a dung beetle. On the other hand, you've got Michael, the archangel, or archangel if you prefer that, angle, angel, something like that. Um, I ask you the question, which is more like God, Michael or the dung beetle? Which one? The answer is neither. Neither is more like God. God is totally different than anything in his creation. There may be semblances, but they're not like him, right? Let me see if I can make this a little clearer. He is totally different. He is totally different. We see in Isaiah and Revelation this repeated phrase of God. He is holy, 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 right? What does the word holy mean? We can use some examples to help us see that. That, that are set apart for certain tasks, right? You don't take the shovel that's used to clean the ashes out of the altar and go out and scrape manure off the roadway, right? It is holy for that purpose. It is set apart for this particular purpose, right? They were different is another way to say that. These are different than that. We also, in that same area, in the tabernacle or the temple, there's a place called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, right? So we go from holy utensils to the Holy of Holies, the Most Holy Place. Um, it's a place that is set apart or different from the rest of the temple, right? There's, as you go to the temple, there's a, you know, a gate outside. Then as you come in, there's a gate here where these people can't go any further. Then you come to this point and these people can't go any further. Then you come to the Holy of Holies and there's only one person who can go into this place, and it's only one day out of the entire year, and it's the high priest. And after he does certain ceremonious things and makes atonement for his own sin before he can then come and do uh, what he does on behalf of the rest of the nation. But this place was different, right, from the rest of the temple. The temple was different from outside of it, but this specific place was different or set apart or even more holy than the rest of the temple. It was different. The repetition in, in Hebrew speech is works as an intensifier. You have holy, then you have holy, holy, the holy of holies, and then you have the largest, you know, giving you can have, which is three. And that's what we see with God. Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. This threefold repetition is uniquely attributed to God in Scripture. God is many things. He's called many things in the Bible. He's called loving. He's called powerful, wrathful. You could go on and make a huge list. 
But there's only one attribute we see in the scriptures given in this threefold pattern, and it's that he's holy, holy, holy. God is completely different than us. To compare him to anything he has created, it really doesn't even put it on a graph or you can chart it, right? You can't chart the infinite to something finite. We looked at God. Let's look at man now. The testimony of Scripture is that man is sinful from conception. From the moment of conception, man is sinful. And as man grows from birth until death, he grows more and more and more sinful as time goes on. And here you may have some objections. Someone may say, well, you know, no one is perfect, right? I'm a sinner just like everyone else. Or you may say something like, you know, compared to this other person, fill in the blank, whoever comes into your mind, I'm pretty good, right? Compared to, you know, you or you or you or you, I'm pretty good, right? Let's use an illustration here to try to picture this. Picture the vilest person you can imagine, whether you work with them, some person from history, the person you look at in the mirror in the morning, whoever it may be, and you take them, and what's the deepest place on earth? Somebody tell me. The Mariana Trench. It's 36,000 feet below sea level, right? So let's take that person and let's put them down there, put their feet right on the lowest point, right? Don't worry about them drowning. That you know They're that far down. Now, take yourself or whoever you may esteem as the highest person, um, you know, in, in righteousness and holiness or whatever today, and you put them on the top of Mount Everest, right? Mount Everest is 29,000 feet above sea level, right? So you got one 36,000 feet below, one 29,000 feet. There's a huge disparity in the distance between them, right? You would say the one on the mountain is much higher than the other, the one down in the trench. But if you gave them both the same task, when it's dark outside and you can see the stars in the sky, reach up and grab one. Is the guy on the mountain at any advantage over the one in the trench? No. He has no more of a chance of doing it than the other guy. Right? He's no In, in reality, he's really no closer. A couple miles on a cosmic scale makes no difference. On a cosmic scale, the closest star to us, besides our own sun, is so far away. The guy on the mountain reaching up and the guy in the pit, or in, in the, um, in the what did I say earlier, trench, reaching up. If you looked at them from the star, you wouldn't even see them, right? They're so far away that the one being higher than the other makes no difference. And imagine this, the distance between sinful man and holy God is even greater than the distance between there and so when we look at man we may say this one's greater than that one but it's like that analysis there's no difference all men are created in the image of god but they have fallen from that and they are in sin and there's no difference there's no distinction all sin and fall short of the glory of god you may say something like well you know compared to stalin or hitler or somebody like this i'm not a bad person you know hitler was terrible what he did stalin was terrible all this reveals is we don't know our own hearts, what the Scripture teaches us of our own hearts. Hitler was terrible. I'm not taking away from that. But if God was not restraining the evil in the hearts of every sinful person in the world, they would make Hitler look like a choir boy every day. The sin of man's heart, not restrained by the common grace of Christ or by God, um, would run rampant to the degree where Hitler would look like a choir boy. And that exists within every sinful man and if it's not for the work of God restraining that, it would be much, much worse than it is today. We see these words, all have sinned. We are all grouped together. None has an advantage. But there's also another part. Not only have we all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. 
So what does this mean, to fall short of the glory of God? Suppose I was to go outside and it wasn't raining and set up a target, right? And then, is that me clicking? No, just kidding. Um, suppose we were to go outside, set up a target, and, I, and we go on the other end of the parking lot, and I give you a bow and arrow, right? I've never even shot a bow and arrow, so if you have, maybe this clicks home with you. But I put it a certain distance away, and we all take turns, and we're shooting arrows trying to hit the bullseye, right? We fall short of the glory of God in the same way that if we were to stand out there and pull back on that arrow and let go, and do we hit the target? Do we hit the bullseye? No. It falls out about four feet in front of us, and it, it doesn't even have the momentum to break the surface of the ground, right? We can't even make it onto the target, much less hit the bullseye. We've fallen short, just as that arrow did, of the glory of God. Man was created in the image and likeness of God in the creation account. He was to rule over the earth and subdue it, and to do what specifically? To cover the earth with the image of God, right? Or another way to say it is to spread the glory of God across the face of the earth, right? What did he do, though? And what do we do? We profane the name of God. We murder other image bearers. We have done the direct opposite of what was commanded of us. We have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may have a sharp intellect. You may be really smart. You may say, you know, I'm, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm a little dense. Either end of the spectrum, you don't get a pass. If you're smart, you're not closer to God than someone who's dumb. If you're dumb, you don't get a free pass because you're not smart. We all are in the same situation. We need supernatural intervention. We need God to act on our behalf to bring about a change in us, to bring us to God. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we can do because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, at this point, someone may say, why are you being so negative? Right? I didn't come to church to be beat down and spoken to about an angry God, you know, this isn't the day of the Puritans anymore where people talk about people hanging over the, the flames of hell by a spider's, you know, strand and, you know, at any moment that could break and we'll plummet into hell and so on and so forth. You know, it's not the time of the Puritans anymore. We don't talk like this at church anymore. If you went to the doctor, let's say you weren't feeling well, and he run his tests and did his scans and whatever else he wants to charge you for, and he comes up with what's wrong with you, the reason you're going to die in a month, and he withholds that from you, what would your description of that doctor be? This is an evil doctor. This is a wicked doctor. He had the treatment available. He knew what was wrong with me, and he withheld it from me. In the same way, if I was to lie to you this morning about your prognosis or fail to tell you the remedy, therefore, I would be even more wicked than this doctor, right? If, if you have cancer and your doctor refuses to tell you, or if he tells you and refuses you the treatment that he has available, he's wicked. But if someone is not willing to tell you the truth about humanity and then offer the remedy to that, they're more wicked than that doctor. When the sun came up this morning, where did the stars go? Did they disappear? Did they cease to exist? No. We just simply can't see them because there's so much light that we can't make out where the stars were. We can only see the stars in the black of night, right? When there's that dark backdrop in the sky, now we can see the light from the stars. They didn't cease to exist. They just were blinded out by all this light. In the same way, for us to recognize our condition and sin, we must place it against a black backdrop. So why do we spend time considering the sinfulness of man? It's because without doing so, the gospel means nothing. 
It's not good news without the bad news. You may have heard that before. For all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. What is due to sinners from a righteous God? The wrath of God is the answer. With that in mind, we would think going into the next verse that what we would see is, therefore God pours out his wrath on the ungodly day by day or something sounding like that, right? Let's look and see what we do see in verse 24. The first words are, being justified. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified. Now that doesn't follow, right, that train of thought. Why is there a transition here? Shouldn't there be something of the wrath of God? But instead we see these words, being justified. We could ask the question, how could this be? How could those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God be justified? We ask the question even, what is it to be justified? So justified is the opposite of being condemned, right? If you've got condemnation, you've got justification. If you're being justified, you are condemned is the opposite. So we are all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. Condemnation is what we expect to see in this verse, is what we deserve. Instead, we have the opposite word. We have justified. These are legal terms. To be justified in a courtroom setting is to be declared righteous. So to be justified is to be declared righteous. And this courtroom illustration, God is the judge. God himself is the judge. He's also the lawgiver. Keep that in mind. So the one who gave the law is also the judge, and he is the one who declares who is righteous, who is condemned. He's the only one who can do that. But we have a problem, and it's that God is good. And you may say, how is God being good a problem for me? The issue is that you are not good. And if God is consistent with his nature and his character, a good God will not let sin go unpunished. So a good God is a terrible thing to consider if you yourself are not good. And we've already read that no one is good, no, not one. God must hate sin. God must hate sin. But not only that, God must hate sinners. He must hate sin and he must hate sinners. Now many recall at these words to hear that God would hate anything, that he would hate sinners or hate sin even. And you know, they may say, well, God is love. God is love. God cannot hate, for God is love, right? It says that in 1 John. But let me ask you this. Do you love children? We look around this room and praise God there's a lot of kids in here. If you answer yes to the question, I love children, then by necessity you must hate abortion. So love necessitates hate in our mind. And if God is greater than us, then is he not capable of the same thing? So if I love children, I must hate abortion. Love necessitates hate. And then someone might say, well... You know the old saying, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner, right? And at that, I would ask a question. Is that what the Bible says? So real quickly, flip over to Psalms chapter 5 with me. We're going to read just a couple verses here, three verses in Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Now listen to this. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord, or Yahweh, abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. 
So we see here that God hates, if you look at it closely, not he doesn't hate the iniquity in this verse. He hates the one who does iniquity, the person. We see that it's not the bloodshed and deceit that God abhors here. His abhorrence is directed toward the man of bloodshed and deceit. God loves righteousness. He loves his own righteousness. Therefore, he must hate iniquity. Love necessitates hate by default. We are not sinners because we sin. We didn't sin and then move into the category of being a sinner, right? We, by nature, are sinners. We're born sinners. We're born in sin. And so because of that, naturally we sin. We sin because we are sinners. God's holy hatred, his holy hatred, and I say holy there to make clear this is the hatred we're speaking of, is this sort of hatred. It's not uncaused or unjust. It's for a particular purpose. But God's holy hatred is directed towards us because we are sinners and we sin. And yet, our text in Romans, if you'll turn back to Romans chapter 3, with that in mind, still says these words, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they're being justified. Now, how could this be? How could this be? We're given the answer in the text. It says, As a gift... By his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, as a gift. How much does a gift cost the recipient? If you're receiving a gift, how much do you pay for it? Nothing, right? That's what makes it a gift. If you have to pay for it, it's not a gift. People joke, you know, I bought myself a birthday present. It's like, okay, well, it wasn't a gift in the truest sense of the word. A gift is something that someone else pays for and you receive without cost. Uh, the King James Version even actually uses the word freely there, right? As a gift, given freely, same idea, right? It doesn't cost you anything. The giver of the gift pays the price. Then we see the words, by his grace. This is sort of redundant. It's freely or as a gift and then by his grace. Because if you know the meaning of the word grace, grace is unmerited favor, or if you want to say it a little uh, clearer maybe, the receiving of something we did not deserve. Right, So this is something we're given as a gift without cost to us. It's the receiving of something we did not deserve and could not have obtained ourselves. And then we have the words, through the redemption. The justice of God, God being just, however you want to say it, does not allow God to simply, you know, nonchalantly pardon sinners. Right? If he did so, then he would be unjust. Let me give you an example. Let's say... I'm going to use a graphic illustration here, so uh, don't let it catch you off guard. Let's say you come home from work or you come home from wherever you were, and when you open the door, your family is laying there slain. And you see the, the guy who did it with your last child. You know, you've got two or three, and he's got the third one by the throat. And as you come in the door, you strain the life out of the last one. And you restrain yourself from retaliation in the sense of killing him, but you restrain him, and the police come and take him away. And a few months later, you go to this trial, and the judge is up here, and the one who killed your family is there. You're sitting in the row on the other side, and you hear the judge say these words, I'm a loving judge. I'm a good judge. I'm a, I'm a loving judge. I forgive you. You're free to go. What would your response be to that judge? You would stand up. You would scream. You would have to probably be restrained by the bailiffs. You would scream, this is unjust. This is not justice. 
This is an evil, wicked judge. He's more wicked and evil even than the man who killed my family because he sits in the seat with the title judge and he wears the black you know, robe thing and he calls himself a judge and yet he is a worker of iniquity himself in greater scale than the one who killed my family because he had the ability and he had the position to bring about justice and he did not do it and he calls himself good and it's not the case. We look at that example and say, I can, I can see that. But then we look at God and say, how can he demand justice? How does he demand justice? If we can understand the case of man, who every one of them was also a sinner, when we look at God who was perfectly righteous and sinned against him, how much more so is justice demanded from a holy God? There's redemption. There's redemption. Redemption requires a price. What is the price of redemption? What is the price of redemption? We see these words, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the price for redemption. The price that has to be paid is Christ himself. And that's what we'll see as we move into verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. As a propitiation in his blood, he displayed him publicly. Let's deal with that part first. What's going on here? What's the deal with this public display part? We've already spoken for just a moment about the Holy of Holies, right? Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come and he would enter in to the temple. And then he would enter in to the, the second part where, you know, certain people couldn't come in. He would go all the way to the very back and he would go through a curtain, right? The same curtain that was torn when Christ, Christ was on the cross. He goes through that curtain into the Holy of Holies and he offers a sacrifice and he does this year after year. I don't want to get too much into Hebrews. That's where we're going in the next few weeks, hopefully. Well, it'll probably take a couple months. But um, he does this year after year after year, right? But he goes into this place, the Holy of Holies. And who can see him in there? God alone, right? There's no access. It's a huge, thick curtain. He's in there by himself. He offers a sacrifice for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. It's in a private place. As private as you can get. This is the Holy of holies there's no access granted to anyone except him only one day of the year on the cross jesus was lifted up in public for all to see this was not done in a private place this was done out on the street where passerbyers could come by and look upon the very son of god himself and see him hanging on the cross right this was a public display and why was it a public display because of the justice of god and we'll get to that in just a moment but this was not a hidden thing. It was done out in the open. And then we come to, I would say, this is the greatest text in all the Bible, I would say. And then we come to the greatest words in this text. As a propitiation in his blood. As a propitiation in his blood. The word propitiation is a very, very strong word. It's a very strong word. What it means is the turning away or the absorbing of the wrath of another. In this case, of course, this is the wrath of God we're speaking of, and it's done by appeasement, right? So something must satisfy or appease the wrath of God um, in this exchange, right? And this is what's taking place in the propitiation. So we ask the question, what happened on the cross? This is the pivotal question of all the Bible, right? Everything before the cross leads to it, everything after looks back to it. This is the pivotal point of all history. And it's the cross and what took place on that cross. So what happened on the cross is something very, very important to consider. 
we ask the question, did the Pharisees succeed in having the Romans kill Jesus? Let me ask it again. Did the Pharisees succeed in having the Romans kill Jesus? The answer is no. That is heresy to say that the Romans or the Pharisees killed Jesus. What did Jesus himself say? I have the authority to lay my life down and to take it back up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly. Those are the words of Jesus himself. We can ask the question, did whips and nails and a cross take the life from Jesus? The answer is no. Very quickly, let's look over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at verses 36 through 44 very quickly. Verses 36 through 44, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Listen to these words, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jump down to uh, verse 42. I'm sorry, verse 41. Um, Keeping watching and praying that you may not... I'm sorry, 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away until I drink it, your will be done. And in verse 44 it says, He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing again. So what did he say again? He said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not your will, yet not my will, but yours. So he's asking about if this cup can be passed from him. And so we ask the question, what is in this cup? What is in this cup that he's referring to? He says he's agonized to the point of death, right? And he goes three times, and in other passages we see where it talks about how he sweats so profusely as, as if he was bleeding or maybe some... Translations will say that he actually bled actual blood. He was that stressed, right? So what would cause him to be traumatized in thought to the point of death, right? It's the thought of this cup being drank. So we ask the question, what is in this cup? What is in the cup he's referring to? Now, you could do an entire series on this idea in the Old Testament, but here we come to it in the New Testament, and the answer is the holy hatred of God, the holy Hatred of God toward un- unrighteousness, sin, and sinners is what is in the cup. What's another way to say that? In other words, hell. The, you know, the, when we think of, you know, die and go to hell, that kind of thing. Hell is what was in this cup. Specifically, the hell of all those who would believe. Because, of course, we understand if you're not in Christ when you die, you go to hell. You pay the punishment for your sins. So the hell of all those who would believe is in this cup. So another way to say it is for those of us in Christ and those of us who will be in Christ upon belief, Christ drank your hell. That's what was in the cup. The holy hatred of God toward unrighteousness, sin, and sinners. His blood was shed on the cross. The price to be paid for sinning against the holy God is death. But not just a temporal death like we spoke of earlier, but an eternal death. 
and eternal death. When we look at the cross, we see that in three hours, Jesus absorbed the eternal punishment for all who would believe. In three short hours, you take how many ever people are going to be saved in all of history, and you take all of their eternal punishments and then condense it down into three hours, you put it in a cup and he drinks it. We see the agony of Christ on the cross. And it's not because of nails and whips and beams. It's because of what's in the cup, namely the hell that we deserved. And then what does he do? He says, it is finished. It is finished. And he bows his head, right? And we can kind of figuratively see there when he does, the cup falls to the ground. And if you look in there, there's not a drop left. He drunk the entire thing. He drank it all. The reason we have to focus so strongly on the sinfulness of man is because without that, we don't see the significance of what Christ did on the cross when he drank this cup and he said it is finished. But here we come to another conundrum. We come to a conundrum. The greatest dilemma in all of Scripture, I would say. We're going to go to one more text and then we'll be wrapping it up after that. Jump over to the book of Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs 17. We're going to read one verse. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Proverbs 17, 15. It says, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord or to Yahweh. So we have two things here. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. He who condemns the righteous is an abomination to Yahweh. If you're not familiar with the word abomination, this is the strongest word in the Old Testament that we see for something loathsome, right? Or something that God hates or something like that, right? So he who justifies the wicked is an abomination. He who condemns the righteous is an abomination to Yahweh. Here's our problem. What have we been talking about this morning? God declaring the wicked to be righteous and the treating of the only righteous one who ever lived as an abomination on the cross, right? We even see these words in the New Testament. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. How do we reconcile those words with the words that say that those who justify the wicked and condemn the righteous are an abomination to Yahweh? Is God unjust is a question asked in the book of Romans. The answer is the cross. The cross. On the cross, Jesus himself became an abomination. He became sin who knew no sin. He became the abomination here. How does God justify the wicked? Because to do so is an abomination. Christ himself became an abomination. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination. Jesus became an abomination. And again, that's one of those things that we say and we take it lightly, right? Our minds wander. We don't consider the gravity of the words. But Jesus became an abomination. God himself in human flesh came and he lived a perfect life. And then at the end of it, he was placed on a cross, 
the wrath of God stored up for all those who would believe was poured out on him in three hours. He drank the cup till it was empty and he said it was finished. How is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous sinner righteous without compromising his own righteousness? What's the answer? What's the answer? It's on the name of the church, guys. It's Calvary. Calvary is the answer. The cross is the answer. The righteousness of God can only be vindicated in Christ if he's going to make wicked sinners righteous themselves. It can only be done through that one means. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, and we say finished work because this is something that was done once and for all. There is no need for continual sacrifices. There is no need for... Catholic masses, there is no need for new revelations, there is no need for any of these things. This is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And you say, okay, this is a great concept. And you know, maybe it's over here. What does that have to do with me? How do I obtain this? And the answer is given to us in that verse. He was publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Through faith is the answer of how that applies to us. Through faith. It is our responsibility, our task, to say to the unbeliever the very words that we see in the New Testament, repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ himself came in perfect righteousness, the exact imprint and nature of God himself, and on the cross he became an abomination. And through that means, we then can be declared righteous because our just wrath that was deserved to us from God was placed on Christ on the cross. This is why the cross, this is why the gospel is the central point of human history. Everything hinges on that. Now, very quickly, we see these words at the end of the verse. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. The question could be asked in the Old Testament and up until this point at the cross, is God just? Because look at all these people who have sinned. And, you know, some of them even, many of them, are accounted to be with God in heaven and will be with God in heaven, right? How could this be so? In the forbearance of God, in the forbearance of God, he looked to the cross and said, it's going to be paid for there, right? You could imagine this. You're putting it on a credit card, right? I'm going to pay that later. So it was put on the credit card. On the name, it says Christ, accounts payable, right? And on the cross, he paid that for all those before the cross, Next verse, for the demonstration, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So not only before the cross, but those after. Now he's not using a credit card, he's using a debit card, right? The funds have been placed in the account, we're drawing out of that now, right? So Christ has paid the price, and all those who believe can be righteous with God. And then we close with these words, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he would be just, that he here is, is God himself. He would be just. God made a way to take sinful man and restore him to righteousness without disqualifying his own justice. That he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we go back to the greatest conundrum in the Bible. How can someone who justifies the wicked 
and says to the one who is righteous, you know, you're condemned. If this is an abomination of God, how can this be? The answer is the cross. And we end with those words in that verse. He's the justifier of the one who has faith while remaining just himself. This is extremely important because if God moved in such a way to bring about the salvation that caused him to be unjust, he couldn't give us something he doesn't personally have himself. You can only give to someone a gift that you possess. If God didn't possess righteousness, we wouldn't either because he couldn't give it to us. I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your consideration of these things. And now I give you the charge of Scripture. Scripture says to you, you were born, conceived even in sin, and you're a sinner, and you sin because you're a sinner. If God gives you what you deserve, it is the just wrath, the holy hatred of God poured out on you for all of eternity. There's only one way of escape, and that was provided in the text that we saw today, that someone else who is able to that's the big thing, the qual- who, who qualifies to be able to do so, takes your punishment for you. And we see that at the cross. So the command of Scripture is to repent, to turn from your sin, the sin that Jesus paid for, the, the sinful life that you live. Turn from that and turn to Christ. Look to him, the finished work he has done. We have to say, if you look at the beginning of verse 27, where is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but of faith. There's nothing you can do. You cannot look to your own works, what you have done, anything like that. It must be through faith in what Christ has accomplished, his works. We are not saved by our own works. We're saved by the works of another, and that uh, another is Christ himself. So believe. Believe this morning. If you have questions about this, you can come see David. If you want to have a very long conversation, as you can tell, um, you can ask me. (laughs) Um, We're going to close now. Um, I'm going to pray. I believe we're going to do uh, another song. Um, is it, all I have is Christ, correct? That's the second one. All right, we're going to do another song, and then we're going to do that song. And look at the words of that song as we sing it, right? I want, you, I want you to pay attention and consider what you've heard this morning and think of how important it is to know that without the work of Christ, we have nothing. All I have is Christ. We're going to pray now. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.